All right, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles. We're going to jump in quick. Um, I've been teaching a series called Rest, and uh, I know that's kind of a strange thing to be thinking about in the season that we're in right now. Um, but in, in retrospect, I think it's the, it's the very thing we ought to be thinking about is rest, because most of us aren't getting any. <laughs> uh, we talked, uh, I'm going to go over just a recap real quickly. But one of the big things that we talked about was um, just kind of starting the series out with this concept that, that God is interested in us having a continual state of blessing and fruitfulness. Um, if that makes no sense to you, if you feel like, well, that's, you know, you're talking about that, uh, uh, that money gospel or something, you want to go down that road, that's fine. We can have that conversation over coffee. I'd love to uh, in the way that God blesses us because um, I think it's important to understand that that's the intention of the Lord is to bless us. And this is what we saw in the, in the early days before the fall in the, in the garden. We saw that God's intention was to walk with them in the cool of the day, to have conversation with them, for, for them to have dominion. He created dominion for, uh, for the people of God. His intent was for them to rule over it, not in a negative sense. Remember, there was no sin yet. And so all of this was a positive thing. He also said to keep the garden. He gave uh, uh, Adam the ability to define. Uh, it's a leadership role. We see that. It's an authority that God gives us in the kingdom to define things uh, rather than allowing someone to define you outside of the, the context of the way the Lord defines you. And that's really, really important because it's very easy uh, to fall into that trap. But God's intention was a continual state. That's what that's what rest really means. We talked about the word uh, Shabbat, meaning uh, Sabbath, seven, or rest. And, and, and it's interesting. I just read this article the other day about the, the number seven. Uh, it's interesting that about every seven years, um, your entire body, every cell in your body, dies and reproduces. So I, I think it's interesting that even in a fallen state where we are right now, that newness of life comes every seven years. Um, you see this, we're, we, we're not going to get into this in too deep, uh, but, but there was a pattern set in Scripture where every seven years something was supposed to happen. Every seven days something was supposed to happen, and it all came back to rest. One of them was allowing the land to lie fallow. And, and Scripture talks about the reason you did that was to allow the land to rest. That's an interesting concept. And, it, and, and a lot of times we don't do that. Like in, in our industrial age, kind of that, coming out of that industrial age, we don't allow the land to rest. And so we have to add chemicals and fertilizer and all these things. And I'm not against all those things. Of course, that's helped you know, produce food for the entire world. So I get it. But if we're not careful, what, what happens is we begin to leach the ground of the good you know, and the positive things that are supposed to be coming from it. Uh, I read an article, you'll find this interesting, I read an article about uh, a pre-19 war, a pre-1940s so salad, as opposed to you eating a salad today in terms of nutrition. And it turns out to get the same nutrition out of the salad that you eat today compared to the one that you would eat pre-1940s in America, you would have to eat seven salads to get the same nutritional context or, or content. And the reason why is because, again, back then, they, uh, the ground was producing less, of course, and so and they, they also didn't have the, the same concept of fertilizers. A lot of those chemicals came from production during the war, some, some of those insights, and helped to develop fertilizers, which is a good thing, but sometimes too much of a good thing can be bad. See how it works? And so, uh, again, this concept of rest is, is literally supposed to include the ground that we, that we walk on and that we uh, produce fruit from. Second thing we talked about is about working from rest and not resting from work. There's a concept in, in uh, Genesis that we talked about. Go back and, and look at that one. I think that was the second one we talked about. Um, and and I, the concept was that man begins his work after God has finished his. In other words, in the garden, the Bible says that God, he, he, he created everything. 
the, the early days of creation, he created everything. He gets to mankind. He creates mankind. The Bible says be fruitful, multiply. He talks about um, to, go, to chase after dominion. He has given him dominion, so to, to rule in dominion. So there's, a, there's something for him to do. There's work for him to do. Keep the garden is what Scripture says. And then what's really interesting about that is that he said, now, after we've, I've given you the command to do all these things, before you do anything, rest with me. And so the, we talked about how God rests on, this, on, on that seventh day. And the concept was that God didn't rest because he was tired, right? And so this is the concept that we have lost, I think, in the kingdom. And uh, some of you guys have talked to me about how this has really helped you, is realizing that, we, that what we're supposed to do, according to Scripture, is rest, then work. But what we do in our culture is we work and then we rest. So let me give you an example. How many of you guys have already have thought about next week and you're ready to go, you can't wait for what's going on next week, you're excited about it, you got some plans, you got some thoughts about what the week is going to hold, you've been talking to the Lord about it, you've been resting with the Lord about it this weekend, right, maybe this afternoon you're going to do that, I don't know, but maybe you've had an opportunity to think through, what's my week going to look like as I go into this, God, what are we talking about, what are you asking of me this week, what can I expect, I'm walking with you in the cool of the day for next week, most of us, if we're, if we're honest, we haven't done that. What we're doing is going, my God, I'm so glad this last week is over. And that's true. <laughs> I get it. I, part of it's the world we live in, the stress, all that. But that's typically how we do it. If you're saying that, if you're doing that, if you're walking in that, there's a good chance that you're resting from your work. So what I would really challenge you to do is at some point, Make the transition in your life, in the patterns and in the rhythms of your life, so that you actually rest before you work. So walk, think of it this way, spending time with the Lord, walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, and we're going to talk about uh, um, why we're able to do that now, because again, that happened before the fall, and then there was a the fall, and then uh, the Bible says after the fall that the ground produced um, it produced fruit, but now there was sweat involved, and we talked about that, how... The, the Bible talked about, this was in Ezekiel, um, it said that the, the priests, when they went in to do their ministry duty, said they must not wear anything that makes them sweat or perspire. And so the concept was that you have to realize that God has done the work. It doesn't mean there isn't a co-labor. So the priests still went in, in that context. There was still something for them to do, but they could not they could not work from it in the sense that God had already produced everything that was necessary and their job was to be in alignment with him and co-labor with him and that was where the fruit would come from. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've tried to be productive and I can be really, really, really productive. I'm, I'm a time management guy. I like that. I, I work as a pastor in blocks of time on purpose so I can move around. Sometimes people are like, what do you do all day? And so I just tell them I play uh, video games on this big screen in here because what do you say to somebody who asks you a question like that as a pastor? Like, ah, soak up all the money, you know, from the church and, you know, go on vacations. That's what I do. I, I, don't, I mean, I don't think people are quite there, but some people are like, well, what do you do? Because it seems like when I see you, you're not working hard. I'm like, that's a really, well, come over on Thursday evenings and you'll see me doing my lawn. So if you want to see me sweat, that's when I'm sweating. That's that producing from the ground thing from the fall. I'm doing that. So I'm not afraid of that. I grew up, my dad was a landscaper. I grew up with sweat and I know exactly what it feels like. But in the kingdom, what God is after is if, if you labor, labor from rest so that you don't move into the place where you're trying to accomplish it out of your own works. 
right? And so you see that in Scripture. The Bible talks about our salvation can't come from that either. But, but so often, even if we have the right mindset of coming into the kingdom, knowing that Jesus has done it all, that my submission to him and what he's done for me is how I receive salvation, how I walk in the kingdom. The gospel, we said this so many times, the gospel is not good advice. How to work more effectively in the kingdom, right? That's sometimes how we treat the gospel. The gospel is good news. You can only do one or two things with good news. You can accept it or you can ignore it. It's news. It happened, it's done, it's finished, whether you do anything with it or not. See how that works? And so if we capture that, we get into this mindset of the kingdom that if I can come into alignment, and some of that is just growing as a disciple, learning the way the kingdom works, learning biblical finances versus worldly finances, learning biblical relationship versus world relationship, learning biblical time management versus worldly, right? Biblical productivity versus worldly. So that one's the one we're talking about, working from rest as, a pro, as opposed to resting from work. There's a biblical time management and pro- productivity that God's trying to draw us into. It. In that place is a perpetual state of rest and blessing. That's the intention. But we're not always receiving it, and we want to try to change that. So we talked about the sweat and God challenging us when it comes trying to do it our own, in our own strength. But I want to challenge us as we go through this. What I want to talk about today about a false perspective that grabs hold of us, that yanks us out of rest probably faster than anything else. So I want to read in Genesis uh, again. This is Genesis again right before the fall. Uh, mankind is, is facing its greatest temptation, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had, God had made. So some people get all twisted about, you know, is the serpent actually talking? Is this, you know, is this what this was looking like, right? Um, it, nobody believed in the platypus until they saw one. So uh, there was no concept for that until science discovered the platypus, right? Um, the reason I say that is there, there are some things we don't understand. Like, was it the actual serpent talking? I mean, the way I think, God can do anything he wants, right? It, was it just symbolic? Uh, you have to make some decisions about how you see Scripture. I think it was the serpent was actually talking. I think the enemy was talking through an animal, right? And you see this happen, actually happen in other parts of Scripture where God actually speaks through a donkey, right? Anybody ever been the donkey? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Sometimes that's a good perspective to put it in. But the point is, is God, that God will speak. He'll do, he, do, he does things supernaturally, and we have to be open to that. We have to be open to the supernatural, or none of this is going to make sense. The truth is, if you don't believe that a man rose from the dead, none of this is going to make any sense to you anyway. So we're going to challenge that and talk about the evidence that demands a verdict in just a minute about whether Jesus did that and what Jesus was like and what, what God the Father was like, how he's represented himself and how he's shown himself to be in his character and his nature. But let me go on with this. So the, the, here's the, the, the devil talking, and this is what he says. Um, he said to the woman, this is the enemy talking through the snake, says to the woman, did God really say? Now here's the thing. This is, and we're going to get to this in just a second, this is the way the enemy deceived mankind. To put it, to put it in the uh, current vernacular, he threw shade at God, right? Like he just, he's like, um, you can't believe anything God's going to say. Like, did he really say that? What did he mean by that, right? It's all this whole this manipulation thing to get, us, to, to get them to take their trust from what God has said and what he's done and how he's represented him and what he's proven himself to be. He goes on, he says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say 
you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So here's, here comes a little bit of half-truth, which is how, how the devil works in this. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And all those things were true to a point. And same thing when Jesus, when, the, when Jesus faces the enemy and the temptation in the desert, one of the things the enemy says, if you will bow down to me, I'll give you the nations of the earth. That was true. In a sense, the Bible says that, that the, the devil since the fall through mankind, he doesn't do it outside of alignment with mankind, which is a really important concept as a believer and understanding the world around us. Everything we see happening, all the brokenness, everything that's happening around us is through alignment with human beings, right? <laughs> it's important to understand that. The moment human beings say, we're, we're not doing this anymore, this is ungodly, what we're doing, these things are not right, we're going to step back, we're going to withhold from the actions of sin and missing the mark, the moment they do that, all of the turmoil goes away. War goes away, it all goes away, right? And so we can talk about that philosophically later on. But here's what happened. The enemy deceives mankind by suggesting that God is fundamentally devious. And I mean both of those words. Fundamentally, at the core, God is really kind of a shyster and he's really trying to get one over on you. He's deceptive, he's devious, he's, this is his character. This is what the enemy is saying. This is God's character, right? And the problem with Eve is she believed it. She believed it in spite of all the evidence that had come before to show her something different about who God was and the declaration that God had, had given. God was, an, he was a generous giver. He was generous. Um, there's a word in, in theology called immutable. I mean, it's not only theology, but it's a big word in, in, in theology, and it just means unchanging. God does not change. The same today. Yesterday, today, and forever, right? We understand this. This is who Jesus is. It's who God is. So the enemy's lies suggested a picture of God which led to both the fall of mankind. So he suggests something to mankind. Mankind buys into it, and the fall occurs, okay? And secondly, it created a position of enmity, man and God at odds as an enemy to one another, now, that was never God's heart, and we see this throughout, uh, throughout Scripture and throughout theology. You see this. The Bible says, before the foundation of time, the Lamb was slain. So God had a plan. None of this surprised God. We read this as if this was the first time God knew what was going on, right? Like he got surprised by the book of Genesis, right? Silly just to think about that. So here's this immutable God, does not change. He's, he's someone lies against him. The people believe it, and because of that, they separated some, the fall occurred, and now there's enmity. There's a great chasm between God and man. There's a brokenness that sin and disobedience has created that cannot be gotten over in our own strength. And we'll get into this in another day, but of course, Jesus comes, and he crosses that chasm for us, and we'll get into the details of that later, but just suffice it to say that there's enmity, enmity between man and God. So deception that sees God as less than perfectly good will remove us from rest. Let me say that again. Deception that sees God, that, that, that uh, ascribes to God something less than perfectly good will rip you away from rest. Why? Because you can't trust him. Lord, I'm going I'm to serve you if. That's, that, that's a great statement that says 
God, I can't trust you to be holy. I can't trust you to be good. I can't trust you to be kind. I can't trust you to answer prayers. I can't trust you, right? So what happens is circumstances begin to arise, and this is what happens. The enemy uses circumstances to ascribe to God something that is not true of God. The the circumstances come like this. They basically come and say, um, God, I, I trusted you for healing, and I didn't receive it. Therefore, you must be. Right? So what we do is we say, rather than say, hey, there's a gap. In other words, I, there was an expectation that I had, right? I'm not seeing it occur. And because I, I don't see that expectation occur, it's not, the expectation is not being met the way I thought it should be. Now there's a gap. So what I put in the gap matters. Do I put faith? Do I put trust? Do I put questions? Questions are fine in the gap. Lord, help me understand, Right? What you have to be careful not to put in the gap is to ascribe to, uh, to God something that is untrue of him. Because the moment you do that, the, that's the moment you come out of alignment. And the moment you come out of alignment you, is the moment you come out of rest. And now, hear me, now it's up to you. And that's what we do. Whether we believe it, whether we understand it completely or not, what we do is say, okay, this is not working out how, how I thought. I, I'm gonna, I, you know what? If, if something's going to be done, you're going to have to do it yourself. Otherwise, it's not going to get done, right? I say that all the time because that's kind of my personality. But I've had to learn that team is better than me. Like when you first delegate something to somebody, this is something you learn. I have one of those kind of personalities, type A personalities. Like it's just easier to do it myself, Right? That used to be true. As I get older, that's less and less true <laughs> because I can't do it as well as a 20-year-old. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> I, I, my mindset is, okay, I delegate this the first time, and let's say I can do it at 100%, right? The first time I, I delegate to somebody, they do it at 40%. And I just look at that. My first inclination is, well, um, that's 60% less than what I could do, so it's just probably better if I just did it myself. And then what you learn, though, is if you delegate it to, to a person a second time, it's 80 or 90%. And if you delegate it maybe a third time, it's 100%. They're doing it, especially as you train them. They can do it as well as you can. And if God made them differently than you, and he actually made them with more inclination for the task at hand, they can actually do it better than you, right? And then the first time, that person is doing it at least 100%, and then then you delegate something to someone else, and they do it at 100%. Now I have 200% in team where I had 100% with just me. But the Bible takes it even further, and it says when you do that, that if you have two people doing it rather than one, it says one can put 1,000 to flight, two can put, anybody know, 10,000 to flight, right? It, it, the, God's math is different than your math. Aren't you glad? And, and in your favor, in your favor, that's the thing. But what, this is what happens. When you, when you take it away from God, when you, when you play the control freak, and circumstances tell you it's not happening the way it's supposed to, rather than come back into the place of rest and say, God, I want to walk you with you in the cool of the day, maybe I misunderstood, maybe I got something wrong, but I know it's not on your end, right? If you can get to that place, then what happens is no matter what happens in your life, you just come back and reevaluate, and you sit down with the Lord, and you say, Lord, it's not working out the way I thought it was, but I'm sure that that's not on you. Can you talk to me about where we are? And then sometimes the Lord will give you information, remind you again, and you misunderstood it, misheard it. Sometimes he will just say, trust me. I don't like that one. Do you like that one? I don't like that one. God, I want to trust you as long as I know what you're doing. So I'm going to evaluate your plan. 
And if it meets, you know, the criteria, then I'll trust you. <laughs> right? And so that's how we do it. So, so let me just kind of big, put a big picture timeline as we kind of get, get, get ready to wrap this up. So there's the first garden. We see the first garden where the devil basically says, in effect, God doesn't have your best good or best interest in mind, but rather wants to keep you subservient to him. The only problem with that was what God said was he created all things, and then he invited mankind in for dominion to take and have dominion over it and to have fellowship with the creator of all things. So God, what God was saying was, remember he makes the animals, and rather than define the animals himself, he brings Adam in and says, Adam, you define the animals. There's a place as a son in the kingdom where you begin to pray and you ask things, and when you're young in the Lord, what will happen is you'll say, Lord, what is it you want me to, to be about and to do? And God is very, um, he's very descriptive in what he tells you to do, right? Because you need to do it a certain way. There's a pattern that's it's important that you do it this way. So he'll give you very specifics. But there comes a day when the Lord says, son, how do you want to do this? I remember the first time that that happened to me really freaked me out because for the first time in my life, God did, I didn't ask God and he told me how to do it. I asked God about it and God said, hey, there's multiple ways. How would you like to make it happen? Because now you're a son. I can trust you. I'm gonna, I've given you dominion. I've given you what you need. You go about it and do it yourself. Now, you have to be careful that, again, if you start there, you're going to get it off the pattern, off the alignment of God, and you're going to mess it all kinds of ways up. And we know that because we've seen that happen in the church, right? Where people started off in the wrong direction. By the time you get 10 miles down the, you know, 10 miles down the road, now you're, you're 10 miles away from the original intent of God. And you have to come back to Scripture and make sure you're doing it your way or His way. But that's the important thing is getting into alignment with God. That The Lord begins to do this thing called co-laboring with you. So he says, hey, I want you to do this. Here's what, I'm, here's what my vision, my heart is for DCF as a church. Here's an organization. God says, I want you to transform lives by encountering grace in, in the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that we don't do other things that other churches do, but primarily this is the unique thing that makes us who we are as a church in the sense that he wants to move and transform lives with this revelation of grace that seems to be something fairly new to the body of Christ and moving by the power and the unction of a spirit who happens to be a person with a will and with a dispensation and a plan in the earth. And so that becomes uniquely ours. But he doesn't say, I need you to do it exactly this way every single Sunday. I, I get up to preach and I pray and I ask the Lord, Lord, talk to me about what's important and what you want to do and how you want to transform people's lives. And he'll give me a message, but he doesn't make, he doesn't make me a parrot. Right? And so it's helpful to understand that. So um, the in-between was the fall. The kingdom come. This is what's really challenging. So the fall occurs, and we're out of alignment with humanity. Or sorry, uh, humanity is out of alignment with God. And so Jesus comes on the scene eventually, and he's going to restore that. But before then, um, it's not where it's supposed to be. There's sickness. I mean, and we're still in this to some degree. We're seeing this. Um, there's sickness. There's brokenness. Uh, the sinful humanity is, is the you know, is the primary leader oftentimes of, of what's going on in the world. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, he says, your kingdom come, this is the prayer he told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, in, as it is in heaven. So what God's intention was in the first garden, God said, this is my intention, this is how I want you to live, I want you to have dominion, I want you to walk in this way, do it this, this way. Here's the pattern, and then sin comes, the enemy throws shade at God, says, this is, you know, God's not like this at all, he's devious, you can't trust him, he is changeable, so what he said late, yet earlier may not be true now, so you can't really trust him. And so you fall into this thing, and then sin 
you know, sin enters the race, sickness comes because of sin, and then you compound that over thousands of years, and you get what we see today, right? Brokenness, why do you strive in relationships? Why do you strive trying to uh, accomplish things? Because there's an enemy of our soul. Even if you do it perfectly well, the enemy is still going to attack us. We get that. So then, that's the fall. There's this in-between time where things are not happening the way God intended it, except through a very few group of people, and, and you see this in Israel and different places. And then there's a second garden in Gethsemane. Matthew 26, you see, you see Jesus praying. It says, he went a little farther, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, and this is what's so powerful, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So the first Adam said, not as you will, as I will, right? So he disobeys, throws humanity into this brokenness thing we call the fall. Sin is running rampant. Jesus comes. He's completely sinless. The one person who doesn't deserve death gives his life away in death. Why? Because he's making a, trans- a transformation between what was taken from us and what he wants to give us back. So what occurred in the garden, what God intended in the garden and man lost through disobedience because of Jesus' obedience going to the cross, started here in this garden, going to the cross, he restores everything that God intended for us to have in the garden. But now we're living in two scenarios. There are two kingdoms at odds. One day that won't be true, but today's not that day. So we have a kingdom of of darkness that is oftentimes in leadership roles and all those things, and then there is the kingdom of God's dear son, the kingdom of light that is at odds. And going back to the scripture I read earlier, what was Jesus' intention? He said, when you pray, pray this way. And so there's some things about that prayer we've taught into that. But this one part, your kingdom come, your intention in heaven that you showed us in the garden, let it come here. So what's the prayer? Jesus said the prayer is, You bring heaven to earth. You do that. So what does that look like? We have seen, I've experienced revival in my lifetime. I remember reading, I got saved in a a Pentecostal uh, denomination. It was overseas. It was all kinds of different denominations together, Pentecostal and others. But I got saved in in signs and wonders and the power of God and moving in ways that really messed with my head sometimes, if I'm honest. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a thinker, I like to think things through, I like to reason, I like logic, I like all those things, and then God comes and says, you know, there was something before logic, right? There was me. Turns out I even created logic. But if I want to do something illogical, because I made logic, there's no such thing as illogical for God. It's only illogical for you. See how that works? And so that challenged me, and I had to make a decision. Is God who he says he is? Is he this God who, who lives, you know, when supernatural means above nature? Not against nature. I love it when people say, you know, science and, and God don't agree. I'm like, well, that's because science is stupid. And I know that's true because science said at one time that there's, you know, that the earth is flat, and everybody believed they were going to sell off and fall off the other end, Right? Some people still believe that, so, you know, that is what it is. Welcome to the Internet. But at some point, we discovered something that the Bible had always said. The Bible talks in Isaiah about sitting on the circle, uh, God sitting on the circle of the earth. And the word circle in, in that translation meant sphere, right? So here's this, here's this prophetic word thousands of years before we scientifically discover this where God shows us some things that are true about the universe that he knew all the time because he created it, right? 
And so there's this sense of what's so amazing to me is how dumb smart people can be. It's, it's really, I mean, it's impressive actually sometimes when you think how dumb smart people can be. So I'm, I'm not against intelligence. I'm not against science or any of those things. What I'm saying is that in my discovery in my lifetime, because I, my passion has been to be intellectually honest, not to buy into a narrative. Like again, what the enemy did was he, he threw um, this, this sense of doubt towards God. and He said, is God really like he says he is? So when, you, when he says that, the, if you've never met God, whereas these guys in the garden had met God, had walked with him in the cool of the day, which is one reason why that sin is so insidious in the book of Genesis. Because they chose to believe a lie about God, even though all the evidence has shown them something different. Now that's different with people to some degree who've never walked with God in the cool of the day. But there are parts of Scripture that say things like, even the heavens declare that God is God. Right? One of my favorite things, I love to do this, is take an atheist. They're like, you know all this came into being, and they go through this evolutionary thing. But, which, by the way, if you're reading some of, the, some of the stuff that's happening in science, it turns out that evolution is having a bit of a challenge nowadays because there's new discoveries that are beginning to challenge whether evolution as a theory, it's always been a theory, even though it's been talked about and taught as a fact, but it's challenging the theory of evolution, and it's really messing some scientists up. And a lot of the scientists are coming to know God. Right? Because all of a sudden, they're beginning to see this as, as it is rather than what someone told them, the narrative that they were forced to believe. Even now, when they believe that, they have to be careful about writing about it because the moment they write about it, they're ostracized from the scientific community. Why? Because science and God can't, they can't live together. Why? Because Jesus said it this way, you're going to have to choose a master. He was talking about money, <laughs> but regardless... When you're faced with two things that are saying that they're going to be the master of your life, maybe for us personally, to put it on a personal note, it's circumstances vying for mastery in our lives, right? Uh, this is happening. You're going to have to submit to it. And think about it. this is, And again, there are aspects and questions about this that, that come up, and, I, and, and that's okay. Again, there's no problem with questions. But, Lord, it seems like the evidence is showing something different. Wonderful. David was always asking questions of God. God, the enemies are around me all the time. He's, he's pushing back on God saying, God saying, this is what I've said to you. This is truth about who you are. And, and so there's this, this dilemma, this tension between he's heard the promises of God and he's not seeing it come to fruition the way he thinks it should in his life. And we had all been there as believers. If you haven't been there, it's because you're a brand new believer and you're going to be there, right? And so what I'm trying to do is help us understand what do you do? And so the first thing is that don't just believe it because someone said it. That's also not helpful. There is plenty of evidence for God. Plenty of evidence. If you want to talk about that, like I said, I'd love to do that because that's really the way I, come to, I came to know the Lord. I had encounters with God that were supernatural, but some of that stuff I even doubted, and so God made sure that both intellectually and emotionally and spiritually I connected with him. He's not afraid of our questions. So the kingdom comes right through Jesus. And Jesus said, this is the way it's been since the fall, but I'm going to show you a different way. So what does Jesus do? He goes out. Here's the ministry of Jesus in a nutshell. You ready? It's as simple as I can make it. He shows power over sickness. Everybody they brought to Jesus, he prays for them and he heals them. Why? One place he literally said it. They, they came, this man was sick, and he said, which is easier to do? To say them, to the man his sins are forgiven, which is going to be the end thing that Jesus does, right? 
And let's be honest, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven than actually heal somebody. So Jesus, this is what he said, so that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the man, take up your bed and walk. And he walks away. And so his healing, his power over sickness and over in the supernatural realm was an indicator to the people around him that he had power to forgive sin. Right? And so Jesus demonstrates this over and over and over again. And then another thing occurs where demon-possessed people, people who are demonized, come onto the picture who now he's dealing with something. So this other place is pushing back against intellectualism and, you know, in a closed world, a boxed-in world that's no place for the supernatural. And Jesus shatters that with healing people. And then the people who did believe in the supernatural, these men come in who are powered by the devil, right, by the demonic, and they come in and they're more powerful physically than anybody else. So the Bible says that we, they they said they put him in chains and he would break the chains. They're terrified of this guy. This, This man has supernatural power and Jesus walks up to him and puts him in his place, right? settles him, casts the demon away, and, and the demon even says to him, who, you know, it's, you're the son of God, why are you come to torment us before the time? And Jesus likes time now, pal. That's not in the Bible, but that's my version of it, right? It's time now, right? And so what was he saying? His dominance over the demonic was over the supernatural. He showed his power over the natural through healing sick people. He shows his power over the supernatural, Right? People who, who recognize that the demons and the devil has a lot of power because he does, right? He operates in a different realm that usually you and I do. Why was he doing that? He was showing, always taking us back to the garden going, remember, there was a day when you were given dominion and you were given rulership and you were given a place of rest that was perpetual. And that's why the patterns, even during the fall, the old, the old covenant, the patterns of Sabbath are there as a reminder over and over and over again that if you would come into alignment with me, this is my intended way of doing things. This is what life is supposed to look like. So that's the second garden. And then finally we, we said it. This is, the last, this is the last garden or the original garden restored. And I just want to read this. This is in Revelation. I read this a lot at funerals, which is a shame. <laughs> Because this is not just for funerals. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is when it's all wrapped up and it's done. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Remember the promise he had. I want to dwell with my people. Remember the picture in the original garden. I want to walk with you in the cool of the day. I don't want sin to get in the way. I don't want nature to get in the way. I don't want anything to be in the way. And he says, think, think about this for a second. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Wow. And then he says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So let me close with this. One of the hardest things in your walk as a believer is when the circumstances of your life don't line up with the promises you've been given. Whether that's through Scripture or personal promises that God has given you. So here's the thing. 
Um, I've shared this from the beginning, and I keep coming back to this because it's, I think it's really helpful. The Bible says when, when, God, he, when we start thinking of God like ourselves, which is the tendency to do, we, what we're really doing is we're setting up an idol, right? So when we, when we rest from work, we've set up an idol. We've set up something else in place of God. We're doing God's thing a different way. We've set up an idol. It's idolatry, and, and God warns us about it over and over again. And so when we get promises, right, and those promises don't come true, if we have seen enough evidence, which I have, maybe some of you have not, and I would encourage you to, to, to look into the evidence, right? But most of us, if we're honest, if we've been believers for a while, there's been enough evidence. So then what happens is when circumstances present us an option that says God is not who he says he is, what we, we have a choice. We have to make a choice. Will we ascribe to God? In other words, will we say to God with our life and with our being and who we are, God, who you say you are is the revelation that comes from you to me, and I say yes to it in every way. Right? I agree, and I'm going to align my life with this truth. Or do I ascribe to God something that is not like God? So do I say to God, Lord, you're changeable. You're not immutable. You promised me something, but obviously my sin has caused that not to happen. Now, don't get me wrong. Sin can get in the way of a lot of things because the Bible says that sin brings death when it's fully released, right? So you want to kill a relationship. You want to kill productivity. You want to kill anything that, that's, that comes from God. Keep sinning and it'll die, right? But as a believer, your sin has been taken away. Even if you choose to continue to walk in that sin, your eternal situation is settled in heaven, right? So maybe you're a bad son, but you're not no son. You understand? But there's a way, and the, and the idea behind this is that we align ourselves with God. We become mature sons. And then what happens is that we rule and reign. His intention for us always has been and always will be to rule and reign with him. Not instead of him. That's what the enemy wants to do. Remember, he set himself up above God. And the Bible says there will come a day when, God's, when, when the devil's usefulness is no more. And that day, all of it changes, and the Bible says he's cast in, into, into that place and he's, nobody remembers anymore because he's no longer going to bother you and I because all of our tears and all of our, everything's been wiped away. Right? That day's coming, but it's not today. So let me finish with this, Karen and I, just a personal note. We've been praying. Most of you guys know, if you don't know, Karen and I don't have any children of our own, physical children. We got lots of sons and daughters in the faith. We're actually going to visit one in, in a couple of weeks down in Florida. Um, we have that, but we don't have any kids. And we felt like through our life that we've had promises that that would be, be the case. People prophesying over us who didn't know we didn't have kids at the time would just say things, and we would track those things, and our, our heart and our intent was, you know what, we're going to have physical kids at some point, right? And that's, you know, when you're 20 and 30 and you're not having kids, eh, you know, still got time. And then it starts going on, and we get tested, and we look at things, and so we end up having some surgeries because we're like, you know, I don't know why, but I'm gonna, we're going to do everything we know to do. Is that wrong or right? I don't know. We, we felt it was right, and so we did it, right? And so we go through that, and there's this moment where we're really, it's really struggling for both of us. It's a challenge. And, and so we, we sat down with Greg and Michelle, some friends of ours who uh, we've been in their church and were our pastors at one point, and now we co-labor together in the kingdom. And we sat down with them, and, and, and Greg, in his fatherly heart, just said some, something super simple. He said, um, you know, at some point, you probably just need to call it. And I, I'm like, 
I don't know what that means. <laughs> Is that something spiritual I'm supposed to understand? And he was like being just super practical. He said, you're striving and it's really tearing you guys apart. It's hard on you guys, especially on Karen, even more so than on me. You just need to call it. And just write that up as, Lord, I don't know and I don't understand and it doesn't make sense and it seems to contradict something you've said. However, if I don't settle this in my heart, I'll never rest. Understand? So we settled it in our heart. Is it disappointing? Sure. We're also still alive, and it turns out there were some people having babies in their 90s. I'm sorry that happens to my wife. That would be tough, but <laughs> right? <laughs> so the jury's still out on the physical babies, literally. Some people say, well, maybe God meant for you to adopt. Like, thank you for your well intentions, right? Do you think we haven't thought of that? Anybody ever get well intentions from other Christians? <laughs> be kind. <laughs> they don't mean to be stupid, <laughs> but it's coming across that way, right? So we just said, of course we thought about it. We prayed it. We've asked the Lord. We've talked about that. And up till now, we haven't. We've had, we've had, at one point, we had a young man in our home. We took on, we didn't adopt him full on because he was 16 at the time, and we didn't feel like that was supposed, what we were supposed to do. We had him for two years and helped transform his life. So we have had kids, even physically, in our home and all that, you understand what I'm getting at. So the jury's still out on that. And then other people, have try, they're trying to help God, right? They'll say things like, well, you know, you have spiritual kids. I, you don't think I haven't thought of that. I'm so thankful for that. I mean, my goodness, ultimately, that's, that's, the, that's the point, right? Spiritual kids, your natural kids should be your spiritual kids at some point. But still, if you're not careful, that little thing will nag. And what it'll do, it'll, it'll begin to use, be used of the enemy. And this is what'll happen. That little phrase will say, did God really say? And listen to me. When you align yourself with the phrase, when you align yourself with that question, you have aligned yourself with no rest. So whatever that scenario is in your life, what it, you know, God, I don't understand why this happened. I, I, my mom died at a very early age, and every Mother's Day since, I've not had her. And I feel ripped off. I don't blame God for that. I'm angry at the devil. I'm angry at sin. I'm angry at sickness. I'm angry at those things. And it drives me to align myself more and more with God. Why? Because maybe I can't do anything about my mother, but maybe my prayer over someone and someone else's mother and they're healed gives them more Mother's Day in this world. But at the end of the day, hear me, we act, and this is one way you know, we act as if all the questions have to be answered in this physical life. And they don't, and they aren't. You understand that, right? Because Jesus said, I'm giving you eternal life. Everybody gets, um, uh, what's the word? Long, they get not eternal life, because eternal life is life with Christ. But we get life ever after. <laughs> to use the phrase, because ever, yeah, everlasting, thank you, that's what scripture calls it, Ever life everlasting, because you're going to spend eternity somewhere, whether it's with God or without him, you're, you're going to be alive forever, we all sense that, here's my point though, that in this lifetime, you're going to have questions, you see this, Hebrews says this, they died having not obtained the promises in this world, okay, that's tough, we've had loved ones pass away, we have relationships fall apart. We've had things that we felt that should come and they haven't. 
You have to, listen to me, you have to make a decision about what you're going to do with the unanswered questions. We were driving home when Karen's brother passed away. And he died unexpectedly. He went in for a surgery and he died unexpectedly. And I remember us driving home and Karen said, she, you know, it's really quiet in the car on, on our way back to Atlanta at the time. And Karen leaned over and she said, I have to make a decision that is God good. Regardless of what happened and my expectation with my brother, I lost him. He's a believer. And I promise if his name's Charles. And if we ask Charles right now, Charles, would you please come back and hang out with us at 508 Drake Drive? You know, would, would you do that? <laughs> He's going to go, I love you guys, but you'll be here in a minute, right? Ain't no way he's coming back. And if I'm I'm being honest, as much as I love Karen, if she's still here when I go, which is likely, (laughs) just statistically speaking, as much as I'd want to be here with her, there's no way I'm coming back from that, right? And so you have to settle it in your heart. Is God who he says? Do you have enough evidence? If you don't, pursue the evidence. Pursue it. And you can do that scripturally. You can do that by hanging around people, listening to other people's testimonies. You can see Jesus said, follow me, which meant there was a, pro- there was a process, not an event, that was going to convince you that he was the Messiah. Understand, we want to make it about a prayer, but Jesus never did that. He made it about a process. He said, if you follow me, I'm going to show you I have power over sickness, Power over the demonic, so power over the natural, over the supernatural, and ultimately that's going to tell you, I have power to forgive your sin. And that's an eternal answer to the question. And what it does is finally, like in this passage in Revelation, it restores us ultimately back to that moment where everything that God intentioned, we're going to be walking in. There's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more, none of those things are going to be here. Can't pray for healing because nobody ever gets sick anymore, right? Can't pray for blessing because no one's under a curse in any form or fashion ever again. It's, it's done. and It's been restored. But today is not that day. <laughs> so in the meantime, your job and my job is to be made into the disciples that learn of him, follow him, align with his, pro- his, his, his intentions, and see Heaven's intentions come to earth even in its broken form. And if we can align ourselves and rest, even when those questions challenge us, we can walk in the fullness of the kingdom. And all of the things that the Lord said he wanted to see in the book of Genesis, we are beginning to see those more and more. And Karen said it, it's an ever-increasing kingdom. And he's going to restore. We're going to see more people healed. We're going to see more signs and wonders. We're going to see more of those things. But what can't be there when we see it is unbelief. So deal with your unbelief. I'm not saying don't ask questions. But questions and unbelief are not the same thing. The Bible teaches that unbelief is a choice you make in spite of the evidence. Amen? So lean in. If there's been enough evidence, make a decision. I'm going to settle it. If I don't have an answer to the question, I'm fine to pursue the question. You saw David do it on a regular basis in the Psalms. But what he never did is ascribe to God something that was untrue of him. He always recognized he was immutable, unchanging, forever good, even if the circumstances tell you something different. And if you settle that in your heart, that is the one place you will find rest that state that God's trying to bring us into. Amen? Stand with me. Jesus, thank you so much for revelation, God, that um, you said my ways are not your ways, they're higher. 
So Lord, thank you that you're drawing us up and understanding through revelation of your, of your word. God, from understanding that, drawing us into a place where the kingdom becomes the first thing. It becomes prominent, Lord. It's the first place in my life. God, out of that, there are times in this world I'll suffer, persecution, challenge from the enemy. I get it. There's pushback because we live in a fallen and broken world. But Lord, ultimately, this is what you've called me to, to be a son, to see heaven come to earth here and now. And one day, Lord, you're going to wipe away all, all the tears. It's going to be done. It's going to be finished, and everything will be restored. But in the meantime, Lord, you have called me to co-labor with you to see that heaven is restored into this place, even in the brokenness, for who will receive you and who will receive what you're doing. And so we say, yes, Lord, send us out even more on mission. Settle these things in our own heart, Lord, so that we can draw many sons to glory. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. If you need prayer, hang out where you are, uh, and we'll send a leader over to pray for you. Otherwise, make your way outside the building, and if you guys want to hang out and ignore social distancing, do it out there. Amen. (laughs) But let's try to stay safe in here and, and do what we need to do. Love you guys.